Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. In keeping with the Buddha's encouragement to ensure that these teachings are freely offered to all, we do not have any set dues or fees associated with any of our classes or media. In an effort to sustain our ability to do so, we ask that you contribute via our website at againstthestreamnashville.com by clicking the Donate tab, or via the mobile app Venmo by sending a donation to the username at ATS Nashville. Enjoy. I've been doing some reflecting. We're in the dead of winter, as they call it. February. It's one of our natural seasons of life. It's a time where It's a lot darker than usual. We retreat inside. We spend a lot of time, should say more time alone. And, uh, you know, I myself have been having a pretty difficult week or two, and I know a lot of folks in my life have been struggling. And I want to talk about how this practice, how the Buddha's teachings and mindfulness, the heart practices that we do here, allow us to open to, to embrace, and to learn from our difficult experiences. I think the topic could be Buddhism without borders. How do we practice during times where we normally want to retreat or avoid or would rather just not open to what is happening right now. Thomas Merton is a Christian Trappist monk and he said that prayer and love are learned in the hour where prayer becomes impossible and the heart is turned to stone. And so how do we stay interested and curious in our lives in the face of difficulty, in the face of change, of loss, of grief, even just the day-to-day monotony or the routine, or how do we stay interested? Because mindfulness is all about presence. It's all about what's happening right here, right now. I don't know if you've noticed, but the mind has a lot of stories and a lot of way more entertaining things to think about. Of all the things I could be doing or want to be doing or that might be happening tomorrow or next week or happened last week, things I forgot to do that I could have done or should have done. So a lot of this is just a big distraction. It's not our fault. It's just what the mind does. It thinks, it wanders, it plans, it thinks about who I am, what I am, who I want to be.
It said that the Buddha taught one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. It's kind of two things. So I was always intrigued by this because I, myself, you know, for some of us, the word suffering is a little bit heavy. It's a little goth. For me, I felt really like, yeah, I could get behind that. I mean, I came to this path to Buddhist practice because I was suffering. That's the only reason why I would sit here with my eyes closed for 30 minutes. It didn't look fun or interesting. It just was maybe the last house on the block. I had a little bit of faith that if I sat down, I'd maybe be able to become more familiar with my own mind. Maybe you know the Buddha looked pretty peaceful and serene. But I'd struggled from depression for a really long time and woke up really without any sense of meaning, any drive to participate, to be curious in my life. Day after day after day, I would just felt like a chore to just live. This may or may not be your experience, but I, you know, really was unsatisfied with this. And I felt like I'd really tried all of the things. I'd tried every variety of drugs and alcohol. I'd tried to endlessly win the attention and connection of other people. You know, I saw people, I saw my dad and you know, other adults throw themselves into their work achievement and I just felt like you know what are what am I doing here what's the purpose of this what am I doing with my life I had some sense of you know okay well connection with other people and I had some basic values I believed in compassion and kindness and these things, but I didn't really feel any sense of safety. And this is what the Dharma, this is what the Buddhist teaching has offered me. Is they call it the groundless ground. Is that, yeah, there is praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, status and unpopularity, that these things come and go and they change. They call these the winds of life, the worldly winds. Life is equally beautiful and tragic, but how I relate to the beauty and the tragedy of the life, that's really where life is in my relationship to both the beauty and the tragedy. Of How do I actually even turn towards and embrace what's difficult? You know, most of, if I reflect on my life, the most valuable experiences in my life have come through the darkest and most trying of times. So we, we're really being asked or invited to sit down and to know the full range of our lived experience. And there's so many distractions we're busy. We've got 
our routines, our habits. And so I think the first thing that I need to do is I need to learn you know, to practice slowing down. If anything, I think what's more valuable than just coming together here tonight on a Sunday night in the middle of February and just sitting down, slowing down? What a beautiful thing. What I get when I slow down is not really necessarily up to me. (laughs) I get a lot of the running around of what I did this past week. There's a lot of that karmic fruit that I'm picking, the cause and effect of living in the world. But what a beautiful thing to slow down and to start to be curious and what does it mean to show up in each moments of experience and can I do that? And then how do I relate to what I'm experiencing? You know, what's my relationship to this you know, being a human being? The Buddha, you know, shared, I think, very, I'm very grateful for this teaching on the practice of embracing dukkha. And dukkha is just, for those who are new, is the squeaky wheel on the shopping cart. You know, it's the part of our lives that doesn't feel smooth. It doesn't go according to plan. It's the, our humanity, our vulnerability, this word vulnere, susceptibility to woundedness, that we have a plan. I wake up every morning with a plan, and that the things don't seem to go according to plan. <laughs> that there's birth, there's aging, there's sickness, there's death, there's gain, there's loss. There's all the neurotic, pathological maneuvering of my mind to try to navigate through what it means to be a human. And so to embrace dukkha to me means to turn towards this and to say, yeah, there is change and there is loss and there is death and there is depression, there is sadness, there is sorrow. So how do I meet that? Am I interested in that? Can I open to the difficulty? Can I even just slow down around it and see what happens? It's such a weird thing to talk about because it's very counter, it's very against the stream of what I want to do. It's really against the stream of culturally what we're trained and taught to do. We're taught, you, you know, you're born, you go to school, you get out of school, you go to more school, you go to more school, you get a job, you make money, you get a family, you get the house, you have the family. And then a lot of times people end up 40, 50 years old, right? We talk about a midlife crisis like, kind of like it's a joke, but there's a guy named Erickson that studied lifespan development, and he said that. It's actually a very real thing. People wake up and have a crisis. What the fuck am I doing here? And so the importance of this reflection is 
not to judge ourselves. Actually, I want to talk quite a bit about this, but rather to have a sense of urgency, or this word samwega, which means spiritual urgency, to be interested because I don't know, in my experience, when things are hard, I'm more curious. When life gets thrown in my lap and the shit doesn't fall according to plan, I get really curious. So this urgency, you know, to see if I can evoke a sense of effort, of energy, to commit to a period of time, to a spiritual path, to a practice of contemplation, contemplative practice, self-reflection. And what we're aiming for is we're aiming for, like I keep coming back to this relationship. So as I'm curious in what's happening, I start to be able to learn how to relate to what's happening. Everything's about relationship. Watching the mind during meditation just endlessly wander, wander, wander. Okay, that's fine. You know, how am I meeting my wandering mind? This painful body. How do I relate to this? We develop first a little bit of distress tolerance. Whenever confronting difficulty, we have to warm up to it. It's like getting in a pool. You get in, sometimes when you're a kid, you just jump in the deep end, right? But that can be, as we learn with our difficulty, not always the wisest thing to do. Say, all right, I'm going to just sit down and deal with it all right now. But we warm up, we warm up to, we learn to tolerate unpleasant feelings and sensations in the body, unpleasant emotions, the circumstances and conditions of our life. We start to turn towards these things slowly and we acclimate. And this distress tolerance over time develops into capacity to hold our experience. They call it the window of tolerance in therapy, which is something we can actually measure. We, can, we learn, we come to learn that we can tolerate the difficulty. We can tolerate the pain and discomfort when we thought it was intolerable. And then we develop faith. And when faith takes root, effort takes root. And when effort takes root, mindfulness, curiosity, Interest takes root. And when we observe with mindfulness, we become focused. And when we become focused, we develop wisdom. They call these the five spiritual faculties. We have to have urgency. Got to do something different. Got to do something. We're always doing something. What are we doing? It's worth looking at what we're doing. We develop some distress tolerance, we start to look into the difficulty, we start to turn towards it, we open to it, we see we can do it, and we develop faith. 
faith, effort, effort, mindfulness, mindfulness, concentration, concentration, wisdom. The fruition of practice, spiritual awakening, is uh, the development of equanimity. Equanimity can be described, so I call it the million dollar word, because it's a word we don't use that often. Sometimes I call it the word of the day. It's always the word of the day. It's really what we're aiming for. Why, why am I doing this? What am I doing here? What am I going to get out of coming here? Equanimity. Equanimity is a capacity to hold or to be with our present experience without push or pull. Without having to push, suppress, avoid, resist, hate, resent, blame. Without having to obsess, crave, anticipate, and grab onto. To be able to open to experience Buddhism without borders. And be curious with an open heart. To trust that your heart knows what to do and that patience, I think, is a very overlooked quality that if we can stay with something for some time, the heart has a way of working it out. But how do we keep on our seat? They said the Buddha sat for seven days and the forces of Mara, I love, I love this myth, this image of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree and just all of the worst parts of his own mind coming to visit him. The hatred, the anger, the aversion to the pain that he felt, the craving, the desire, the obsession, that part of your mind if you meditate at home that says, I could just get up and go eat a bag of potato chips, watch some Office on Netflix, right? We all have that. That part of us that gets us going into something else, they call it bhavatanha, craving to exist. My mind just wants to manifest something. It wants to make something. You can notice this if you sit in mindfulness for 10, 15 minutes, all the things your mind wants to make. The word for attention in Pali Sanskrit, manasikara, means making in the mind. So whatever we pay attention to, it gets made in the mind. And then the mind goes out and tries to create that story or to go after that thing. And so if we're not aware, if we're not paying attention to our attention, what happens is that attention just moves towards the pleasant, avoids the pain. But with equanimity, we can sit right in the middle. This word equanimity, upeka, means there in the middleness. The capacity to be with our present experience without push or pull. How do I show up and sit in the middle of the fire, in the middle of the desire, the craving, the obsession? You know, I'm sharing this, as I'm sharing this, I'm feeling a little bit like I'm being preachy, but I think this is a talk, this is something that we should encourage each other around, sit, you know, to sit with pain and discomfort because the mind doesn't want to do that. When it's hard to keep showing up, to not get off the path, to just keep showing up. When we get off the path, to come back to the path. 
when we're having a hard day, to be curious, to get some encouragement from people. You can do it. I believe awakening is possible. I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe. I've been practicing for, I don't know, six years now, six and a half years. If all I did with mindfulness was reduce stress, mindfulness-based stress reduction, if I could just reduce stress, fuck this. Heroin reduces stress a lot better than I feel sometimes sitting here with my anxiety. You know, it's like, all right, you know, whatever gets us here, but then what keeps us here is encouragement. You can do it. Of course, I say this, I'm saying this for myself. I've had a really tough week, so what I need to hear right now is encouragement to keep showing up, to keep being curious, to not leave. Don't leave. Because my mind will talk me off of the seat. The last part of the Buddha's mind that visited him during this seven-day of just treacherous hell, the worst of all of the hindrances, they call it, the obstacles of the Dharma is doubt. And doubt came to visit the Buddha and said, you can't fucking do this. What have you, you've been sitting here for seven days and your mind is still relentless. What are you even doing? What are you trying to accomplish? You're no further along than you were on the first day. And the Buddha, this beautiful image, I don't know if one of these statues is doing it, this mudra of touching the ground. A lot of times when you see the statue of the Buddha, he'll be touching the ground. And he reached down to the earth beneath him and he let the earth bear witness when he lost confidence in himself, he said, oh yeah, the earth is my witness I can awaken. It's because I'm born into this world that I can free myself from suffering. That if I just keep showing up here, he touched here. Satipatthana, mindfulness, that word satipatthana means to remember the ground. I don't know where we got mindfulness from. It means to remember the ground. So sometimes the ground just sucks ass. And we forget that, and we make a big story about it. It's like, and it's not your fault that you do that either. Just the story comes, and it sucks, and it's like, then the doubt. And we've just got to stay. We've just got to keep coming. And to watch out for one of the things that causes and creates suffering, they call it sankara dukkha. And sankara is a word that's really hard to translate, but it, it's basically what we call the to-do mind. It's the part of the mind that feels like when especially we're struggling that we need to fix it or to do something, to change it, to control it. It's really hard. It's the, it's the if there is one paradox we're sitting in the middle of, it's the paradox of acceptance and change. Because yeah, I can do things to better my circumstances. And I should do things to better my circumstances. And the Buddha talked about these things. Wise association, good friendship, community. Get friends. 
friends in the past, friends that encourage you, that support you, that surround you. Talk to your friends. Service. Be of service. I mean, if there's one thing just in the world that is worth spending time doing, it's helping each other. Even if we don't know what the fuck we're doing here, it's like, well, at least I can help you (laughs) try to get through this too because I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe we can not know what we're doing together, but at least we can support and serve each other. Service, wise association, these are things that are important. And we want to change our lives. We want to structure our lives. We want to start to practice renunciation, which is let go of some of the things, simplify, try to live more simply. So we need to change, but we also want to practice acceptance. And acceptance is what I call the letting in before the letting go. The letting it be. Because when something's not serving me, when I'm acting in a way that's causing myself or others harm, if I sit with it, I'll feel the suffering of that. I'll feel the regret of that. That's good. Regret and shame in this way, in the form of recognizing what's not helpful or skillful, they call these the guardians, the protectors in Buddhism. Hiri and Otipa, which are good emotions. So when I sit with something that's not quite gelling with Awakening with what I'm trying to, you know, practice here, the heart recognizes that and says, "Oh, this isn't. This feels bad." And to let that in, to let that in, and then we can let it go. If we don't know the cause of suffering, we can't know the end of suffering. So I think that's another thing. Is like, what does cause suffering then? What causes stress, distress, disjointedness? All of this is just the the brain's neurobiological feeling that it should be better, craving, clinging. Yeah. Satipatthana, remember the ground. Yeah, because the ground is present mm-hmm. here, and it just it is. And so even though I had a hard time when I was when I was meditating, trying to focus inward, you know, every breath it was like my, I would find some distraction and then bring it back in. You know, I don't think I made a single breath the entire time without you know well, well, keeping completely focused inward, which you know was fine because when it finished, I felt very present. Mm. Present, I felt. Kind of here and now, and not, you know, because it's like all, all the things that cause, you know, all the big problems are like things that are in the future that you can't control or that are uncertain, things that are in the past that you don't control about. If there's a problem right now, I can deal with it. But, you know, being able to focus and return kind of to the here and now was my takeaway, right. which that was, that really 
Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and sometimes it like feels like when I'm meditating that I should be doing. It's like, what am I doing again? It's like, oh yeah, the breath. But why? Why the breath? It's just to develop this presence of like. We forget. We forget what's right in front of us because we get caught up in the fixing and the doing and the, you know, anticipating and the entertaining, the obsession, some idea that my life should just always be different than it is right now, that that feeling of feeling off is that there's something wrong with that, that I need to fix it, change it. Thanks for sharing that. And for the development of equanimity. Equanimity is this capacity to hold our experience. You know, there are a couple things. We develop this quality of mind. Equanimity is, uh, has this characteristic of impartiality, which means in the legal system, it's a principle of justice, holding that decision should be based on objective criteria rather than on the basis of bias, prejudice, or preferring the benefit to one person over another for improper reasons. Mindfulness, a thought is just a thought, a feeling is just a feeling, an attitude is just an attitude. You know, that there's no judgment, there's no extra... There's no need to get lost in the content that we will, but even when we get lost in the content of the thought and the mind, to just notice, oh, that's just thinking happening right now. No judgment on the thought. Your mind, you feel tired, you fall asleep during the meditation. No judgment. Mind's restless, no judgment. You, you were perfectly focused last time you meditated. This time, not so much. No judgment. To just be interested with this impartial, open attitude, even-mindedness, quality of equanimity. There's another quality of equanimity, which I've been talking about the most or teasing out, which is this quality of standing near. This is the direct translation of the word upaka, there in the middleness, to just stand near our experience, to hold in frame. Mindfulness is like a picture frame that you hold up. Whatever your attention is on, mindfulness just frames it up. There's no going in and fixing, changing, controlling, or trying to make it different. It's just simply observing and being curious and watching, watching what happens. What you'll notice what happens is that it always changes your experience. That your mind has a tendency to identify and therefore to oftentimes suffer about your experience because it gets locked into these fixed patterns. And that the mind craves pleasure and wants to avoid pain and it will oftentimes go for short term over long term. Short term feel good over long term you could call it happiness, contentment. So how can we frame up? Right now it's like this is one of my favorite phrases. Ajahn Sumedho says this, right now it's like this. Ajahn Chah has a beautiful quote. He's a Thai forest monk that's in this lineage that Against the Stream has come from. And he says, 
Equanimity is like sitting in a forest pool. And he says, when you practice mindfulness, your mind naturally becomes still like a forest pool. And all sorts of strange and wonderful creatures come and drink from the pool. And so this is the awakened mind is not without visitors. That all sorts of things happen in this frame of mindfulness. And how do we stand near to just observe and to be present with that? The near enemy of equanimity is indifference, which is actually the opposite of standing near. It's a sense of dismissiveness. Right? We know this sometimes when we say the word fine. How are you? I'm fine. It appears very even. It's like, oh man, he's cool. He's always fine. He's always doing good. You know, but there, there's this quality of detachment, disconnection. And so we want to look at that. You know, is this engaged Buddhism or is this spiritual bypass Buddhism? Is this the love and light radiating through all of our orifices in all directions? You know, this universal, we're all one man. You know, type of, <laughs> which is beautiful, but is it, the, is it the beautiful quality of that universality? Is it that beautiful quality of openness? Or is it the a little bit compartmentalized, shut off, a little bit almost disengaged or indifferent quality? Wisdom. Wisdom, equanimity is the understanding. It's a view. So on one hand, it's a capacity, distress tolerance, to hold our experience, to be with, to stand near, to be impartial to our experience. But it's also a view. It's a view that we want to remember and we need to constantly bring ourselves back to is that each one of us has to do the work to free ourselves from stress and suffering in this world. That no one can do it for us. That we, we have to do the work. Just as the Buddha did the work, there's no out there. It's all in here. Everything you need is inside yourself. That's what this word, ehipasako, search inside yourself, look inside yourself. Everything you have is internal. We each have to do the work. This means that equanimity sometimes in the face of practicing compassion looks like letting people into our heart without letting them into our home. Sometimes it means... We're limited in the amount of tending to pain and suffering we can do because we're humans and we need to practice some balance. And so we all have to do the work ourselves. Some of my thoughts. We got plenty of time.